Well, children aren't the only ones that have difficulty listening, are they? I think we have to admit that. Uh, We might try to soften the blow a little bit and say things like we just have selective hearing and, and we laugh and... But the truth is, we don't always listen as well as we should. We all wrestle with that within our homes and marriages and uh, within the places where we work and at school maybe. And, and even as we gather as the church, we have trouble listening to one another. And one of the indicators is that we do use the terms hearing and listening synonymously. Um, but the reality is that they, these are two very different things. Hearing is physiological, uh, something that's given to us um, in in some, uh, in in more, um, in varying degrees than others. But listening is more psychological. It's learned, but still it's learned in varying degrees. uh, Hearing is actually more passive, but listening is more active. And, and really, hearing is simply a step in the listening process. We have to hear something first to actually listen. So we, we take it in, we hear, and then we begin to move beyond just hearing to paying attention to it and considering it, heeding it. Um, we think of ways in which then we might apply it. And then, of course, then we can store whatever it is we've listened to and and keep it and reserve it for later. But there's also this issue of responding. Uh, Responding is a part of listening as well. And that can be nonverbal. It can be through a nod of the head or a smile or maybe eye contact. Uh, It could be psychological and it could just simply be affirming. Uh, someone's argument, or maybe even disagreeing with someone's argument. You can disagree and still communicate that you're listening. But we move beyond that, and of course we get to behavior. And that's why I was asking the children, and that's why you, you, you as parents may even ask them, did you hear me? What you're ask, actually asking is, were you listening? And the reason you're asking, were they listening, is because they aren't doing what you wanted them to do. Caroline was on the money down here. And so we have to take all of that into consideration. And when we hear someone say, yes, I heard you, what we are hearing is, yes, I listened and I will do what you ask. And so you can see where all the, the confusion comes and why we have trouble in that area. And And I'm going to stop right there because before you think I'm introducing a talk on how to be a better communicator, that's not where I'm going. I'm trying to introduce these these two very simple verses tonight. Because what Jesus says, as I was telling the children, what Jesus says is something that He said just almost a week prior. A little more than a week prior. And he's saying it right on the heels of those three disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, hearing God the Father say, listen to my son. Those exact words were, this is my son, in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. And as I told the kids, that listen, that involves hearing, and it involves heeding or considering, and it also involves obedience. 
So God the Father is telling the disciples at that moment, I want you to not only hear Him, I want you to consider His words, I want you to dwell upon Him and, and, and think about Him, but then I also want you to respond. And so that's really what our outline is going to look like in these two verses. I want us, as we listen to Jesus, I want us to hear what Jesus said here in verses 22 and 23. I want us to consider what He said, and then I want us to respond. All of us in some way can respond to these words that Jesus has spoken and is speaking tonight. So if you would, let's stand in the honor of God's Word one more time. I know Matt did a great job of reading it, but I want to read it one more time just as we move in uh, to our time of study. But hear now the Word of the Lord. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we would ask, as I already have, that you would grant us ears to hear, but that we would might, might not only hear, but that we would consider what it is that Jesus is saying here, that we would understand the significance. That, Father, as you call us to respond, that we would respond. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's hear what he said in these two verses. They're very simple. It's matter of fact. It's straightforward. Uh, and like I said, he's just said it a week earlier. And he's, he's not using the exact words, but he is describing the same circumstances and event. If you remember from chapter 16, he said, I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer under the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes. I must be killed and I must rise again in three days. Here, he, he says that he is going to be killed and be raised in three days. But rather than say suffer, he says he's going to be delivered. But he's still describing the same thing because of how that word delivered is used most commonly in reference to how Judas, or, or in regards to Judas's actions from here forward through the resurrection, or through the crucifixion and then to the resurrection. And how that word is used, it means to hand over, but because it's used to describe what Judas does and the hostile motivation that's behind it, he's really saying the same thing. I'm going to go, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be handed over hostily, I'm going to, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to rise again. He's sharing the gospel. And we hear those words, we hear them read. You hear me describe them just a little bit, nothing more than just what, what the facts are. And in many cases, we hear them so often that it's, we have to admit it's possible that we grow indifferent to them. We have to admit maybe in some cases, there may be somebody here tonight that over time you've heard those words, I must, I must die and I must rise again or I must be delivered and die and rise again. And we hear the gospel on a regular basis and so often that we not only grow indifferent to it, but there are times that we could even be considered callous 
and hardened to the truth that is there. I think we have to be honest and admit that. And we have to admit that even though Paul says that the, this that Jesus is describing that he must go and do is of first importance. And we still have trouble because of how often we hear it. And I would simply say that tonight, brothers and sisters, if that's the case, if you find yourself in that position tonight where you've, you've grown indifferent to the gospel and, and those words have lost some significance, I would pray this evening that the Lord would awaken you and would awaken, awaken us by His Spirit. That we would hear those words new and afresh and that our, our, our love for the gospel and our love for the Lord Jesus Christ would be rekindled through the simple means of grace of word and sacrament tonight. So that's the hearing. But when we consider, when we pause long enough to consider what it is that Jesus is saying, we need to consider a few things. One, I want us first to notice the certainty of what he says. Back in chapter 16, he spoke of the necessity. He said, I must go to Jerusalem. But here he's talking about He's talking about the certainty of it. He says it is, he is to be delivered. He is or will be killed and he will be raised. It's an absolute certainty because it's all a part, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago and we read in Acts 2, it's all a part of God's predetermined plan of redemption. It's something that he is determined to do. The father is not reacting to men's choices. He's not reacting to his people having rejected the Messiah in some way. And as I've already said before, he's not putting, putting plan B into play. The crucifixion has always been about what the father had planned. The certainty of what is to come in Jerusalem is due to the fact that it's what the Father had determined to do prior to the foundation of the world. Jesus is communicating that He will fulfill what the Father had sent Him to do. And that was to be obedient to the point of death on the cross. And He's matter of fact about that. It's going to happen. It will happen. It is certain. But let's also notice the distress that it caused. Notice the distress. Matthew says that the disciples were greatly distressed. And we ask ourselves, when we just read that, and we ask ourselves, why would that be? Mark and Luke help us by describing the same uh, occurrence or the same event. Uh, and both of them say that they, they were distressed because they did not understand. And Luke goes a little farther, and he even says that they don't understand because it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. What does he mean? Well, Calvin helps us in his commentary on this passage. He says, and this is a great quote, he says, so great is the influence of preconceived opinion that it brings darkness over the mind in the midst of the clearest sight. I, I want to read that again. I, so great is the influence of preconceived opinion that it brings darkness over the mind in the midst of the clearest sight. In other words, the disciples didn't understand because what he was saying, the significance was being concealed, but it was being concealed by their own preconceived ideas of what the Messiah had come to do and what the kingdom would look like. It was so ingrained. They had been told these things, and so they were considering this physical, economic, social, and political deliverance. 
and this earthly reign. And so the death of the Messiah, just like in 16, here in 17 again, just like before, they just can't comprehend that this reign would include the death of the Messiah. It, it just did not register or make sense. And so they were obviously disturbed, actually to the point of grief, frustrated that they didn't understand. But, but we're, we're given this glimpse of a love that they have for Jesus, even though they don't fully comprehend what he's come to do. Right? Love that was first exhibited through that anger of Peter, and now it's through the grief They love him. They've heard what he said. They don't quite understand. And they're frustrated because they don't understand the significance. So, what is the significance? What's behind these very this one sentence? What lies behind that one sentence? Well, there's several things. Four I want to point to. There's several things we can only we can only we can't go as deep as, as we want to or should, but there are four things in particular I want us to think about. One is I want us to think about the fact that he indirectly spoke of the severity of our sin. In that statement, he does speak of the severity of our sin. And I say that because we have this tendency to forget that the severity of a cure or the severity of a solution gives evidence of or always points to the severity of the problem. So when we think about that, what would necessitate the betrayal, death, suffering, death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God? It's not simple indiscretions. It's not habits. It's not hang-ups. It's sin. It's sin. Christ knew that men were dead in their trespasses and sins. Christ knew that we were corrupt spiritually, morally, physically, behaviorally, volitionally from Romans 3. Everything about us was corrupt due to our sin. He knew that we were guilty and deserving of condemnation. He knew that we were bound in our trespasses and sins. He knew that we were alienated from God. And He knew that we had no hope apart from Him. He knew all of that. There wasn't anything in and of ourselves. He knew that there was nothing in and of ourselves. There was nothing that we could do by ourselves to justify ourselves and set us right before God. But notice he also spoke of his humiliation. He spoke of his humiliation. If we consider his words that he would be delivered into the hands of men, we're confronted with the fact that the Son of God The God-man, the one through whom man was created, would willingly give himself up and lay down his life to be betrayed, beaten, mocked, and ultimately killed. The one with all power and with all authority would willingly go to the cross. He would be taken advantage of. He would be mistreated. He would be humiliated. And Ligon Duncan points out that this was something that David even understood should be avoided. If you remember the story of David in in 2 Samuel chapter 24, David says that he would rather face the punishment of God than to be delivered into the hands of wicked men. Why? 
because he says, God is merciful and wicked men are not. And yet, what did Jesus do? Willingly submitted himself, delivered himself over to the hands of angry, wicked men for sinners like you and me. But not only did he talk about his humiliation, he also spoke of his substitutionary atonement. That's that when we consider what he's talking about and, and we look at the fullness of Scripture, we know that this is more than this self-denial. It's more uh, an example of self-denial. It's more than this example of how much God loved us, though he, it does show us that. And as I was trying to think how many times you've heard me say this since Christmas. But Isaiah 53 gives us the, the greatest picture of that. In the prophecy of what the Son of God had come to do, stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastised, wounded, and oppressed. Why? For sinners. For our griefs. For our iniquities. For our transgressions. Whatever stood in the way between us and a right relationship with God, Christ took upon Himself and bore it on the cross. There wasn't, again, there wasn't anything that we could do. It was all about what He has done. It was, it was Him as a substitute that took on the punishment that we deserved. It was His blood that was shed that cleansed us of our sin and removed the guilt that we had before Him. We are now in Him by faith. We are now, there, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ because that has been washed away. But not only that, it was His sacrifice in which God's wrath was satisfied. And so not only have we been washed clean, but God's face has turned toward us. The Father's face has turned toward those who trust in the Lord Jesus favorably and peaceably through Christ's work on the cross we're set free. Redeemed from that bondage that we were in. And our relationship is back the way it should be with our Creator. We've been reconciled to our Creator through what Christ has done for us. And lastly, he speaks of hope. When we consider the words that he was raised, he speaks of hope. He speaks of hope because, yes, he would be humiliated. Yes, he would suffer. Yes, he would die. Yes, he would be buried, but he would not remain in the grave. He did not remain in the grave. On the third day, he was raised to life. And this is very, very significant because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that because Christ has raised from the dead, what I'm doing is not a waste of time. I can stand in confidence in what I'm doing because... It is not a waste of time because our faith isn't futile. Our preaching is not in vain. It means we're, we're not in our sins anymore. And we have hope because not only has Jesus been raised, but because we have placed our faith in Him that we will be raised as well. Death is not final. And so we have hope. The resurrection was God's stamp of approval on Christ's sacrifice. It was that receipt for the price that Christ paid. It was a means by which God expressed His satisfaction and acceptance of the work of the Son on our behalf.
there's hope. So let me ask, is it different to hear the words and consider the words? Is it different to hear that he was delivered, killed, and would be raised again? And then to understand that he's, he's speaking of the severity of our sin and the humiliation that he would undergo. And the substitutionary atonement that he would provide and the hope that we have. Or does that significance remain lost? Do you find yourself this evening still indifferent or calloused and maybe even ambivalent? Do you hear, do you hear what I'm saying and yet mentally you've checked out and you've thought, you know, he says this every week? I would pray, I would pray that this would be more than the same old, same old. And that you would regain the wonder of the cross. The wonder of Christ and His death and resurrection. I pray that tonight that the Spirit would awaken all of us to the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And that He would keep us from growing indifferent. Keep us from growing apathetic. And again, why we come? We come to worship. We come to receive that our faith might be strengthened through word and sacrament. So we've heard... We've considered, how do we respond? How do we respond? What, what is it that we can do? And there are several things I want to list here. And it, it may be tonight that you need to think of all, all of these. Or maybe there's one. But I think there's a way in which we all, in some form or fashion, can respond. Even, even as we will come and respond at the table. But let me call us to several things tonight. First, let me simply call us to believe. Believe. Believe what the Bible says is true. Believe the words of Christ. Believe that He did exactly what it says He would do. Believe that He went to Jerusalem. Believe that He was betrayed. Believe that He suffered. Believe that He died. Believe that He was buried. Believe that He rose again from the dead. And don't just believe, but go on believing. Keep on believing. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe the gospel. But let me also call us to repent. Where we need to repent. Let us acknowledge the severity of our sin. And let us repent of that sin. Let us repent of our lack of obedience. And let us repent of our surplus of disobedience. Let us repent of our selfishness. Let us repent of idolatry and those things that we, that we value more than Christ. Let us repent of our, our worry and our lack of trust in the Lord. Let us repent of our pride and our self-sufficiency. Let us, let us repent of our self-satisfaction and looking for satisfaction other than anywhere but the Lord Jesus. And then let me call us to receive. Receive the forgiveness that is offered in Christ. He's promised that if we will repent of our sins, He is faithful to forgive us of our sins. So let's, let's grab a hold of that. There is no sin so small that doesn't need to be forgiven. But there's not a sin out of His reach. There's not a sin so great that you can't come and repent and receive the forgiveness that He offers. 
His work is full and final and complete. Receive that tonight. Receive the forgiveness that He offers. And then let me call us to rest. Rest in Christ. Rest in His work on your behalf. His work is sufficient. There's nothing for us to add. There's nothing that we can add. Rest in His love and in His grace and in His mercy and in His forgiveness tonight. Our identity is found and should only be found in Him. And let us, let's lean back and rest into that. And, and, and I want to, again, borrow from Ligon Duncan. and Let us rest in hope. Listen to, to what he says. First he quotes Calvin, but he says, Calvin says of the disciples, the overwhelming horror of the cross suddenly seized them and shut the door on the comfort that they could have derived from the hope of the resurrection. And then... Mr. Duncan goes on, he says, isn't that what happens to us? When we are faced by those anomalies of life, when we're overwhelmed by the trial that we have been called to undergo, we forget the power of the resurrection. We forget that hope of the resurrection because the power of the moment overwhelms us as we see the trial that we are facing. Yet Jesus Christ, in these words, intends to say to His disciples, the glory of My resurrection will transcend any trial that you will ever experience. Rest in that tonight. Rest in the resurrection that would turn sorrow into joy. Rest in the resurrection that, and know that whatever you're suffering, whatever you're experiencing, whatever trial you're undergoing, All of those things are temporary in light of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And may we rest in the resurrection and what He has done. And may we see our circumstances and see those trials. Those things through which, as I was talking to Ernie before the service, those things through which He sanctifies us. May we see them through the lens of the resurrection. And may may we have hope. Regardless of what those things might be. Rest in Christ. And let me also call call us to follow. As Jesus did earlier in chapter 17. He has paved the path of suffering. or He's paved that path with suffering. And we should expect nothing less than that. But oh, while it is a call to self-denial to the point of giving up our lives for Him. Let us remember what we learned in Ephesians. And that we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so if we've been given all that we need and all that we could ever imagine in Christ, what is there to lose? By following Him, we can expend ourselves for the sake of Christ and for the gospel and for our neighbor without fear. And finally, let me call us to share. Let me call us to share, to share the gospel with those around us. You know, many have, and this is changing in this area, but many, many have never heard the gospel. I know that that's hard to believe in Northwest Arkansas and in the Bible Belt, but more and more every day, there are people that we run into that have never heard, not even heard the gospel. And there are more who have, have heard, but haven't listened. Remember, we live in the Bible Belt. But there are also some who have heard and have listened but have grown cold. 
And they've grown cold for for a number of reasons. But a couple that I was thinking about this week is they've grown cold in some cases because the gospel is used more as an adjective and a modifier today than it is a historical event that has very, very significant spiritual and theological consequences. And secondly, not to mention the fact that there are many who have, have grown cold because A, they either aren't attending a local church on a regular basis, or B, they're in a church and, the st- and they're receiving a steady diet of confusion between law and gospel. And brothers and sisters, this, this, is, uh, this isn't a small and insignificant problem, and it's one that I'm, I'm deeply, deeply troubled by. People need to hear the truth of the gospel, that they can do nothing to justify themselves before God. It's all about what Christ has done for them. They need to hear that the only thing they contribute to their salvation is their sin and nothing else. And they need to hear that. They need to rest in that. They need to be set free. And we have that message. So may we go and may we share that clearly and boldly and meekly again. May we expend ourselves for the sake of Christ and His gospel, His kingdom, and for our neighbor. May we hear and consider. May we respond to the gospel tonight. Let's pray together.